before Hurricane Katrina, the largest natural disaster that had ever struck the United States was Hurricane Andrew. In August of 1992, it caused about $45 billion in damage. After the hurricane, a television news crew went to South Florida to film some of the destruction, and they found a man clearing out debris in front of his house, and as the camera spanned the area, his was the only house standing. All the other houses in the neighborhood had been destroyed. And so the reporter asked, how did you manage to escape the destruction of the hurricane? And the man said this, I built my house according to the code. The code said to use two by sixes, so I used two by sixes. But I sat here and watched the rest of these houses being built, and all of the contractors skimped on the houses as they built them. Somebody told me that if I built the house according to code, it would even survive a hurricane. And look, they were right. A team of researchers after Katrina, building code specialists, engineers, wood industry experts, went to the area around southern Mississippi and New Orleans and found similar results. John Vandalent, a professor at Colorado State University and a member of the team who went out and investigated these three dozen sites, said, if the building code was followed, generally the building did very well. Here's the point. When the sun is shining and the skies are blue, it is very tempting to avoid foundational structures. As pastors, Pastor Kaiser and I see this all too frequently in children raised in the church Your parents are fighting the good fight of faith. They are struggling with sin and Satan in a fallen world. Yes, they fail, and I'm sure you can point those failures out to them quite readily, but they are seeking to please the Lord. And under their roof, covenant children reap tremendous benefits of their attention to the building codes. But then, often, when the children leave the home... And go out on their own because their parents' struggles have provided them with nothing but fair weather. They may build a life that looks good on the outside but lacks the strength, lacks the two-by-sixes to sustain through a hurricane. Well, Psalm 19 is written to motivate you to change your attitude and to change your behaviors. Now, last week, we looked at the first six verses of the psalm, and it reminded us that general revelation, and I asked you, especially you children, to make that a vocabulary word with which you are familiar. General revelation proves that there is a God, and He is maker of heaven and earth. Now, everyone, according to the Bible, knows this truth, and so, as a result, All are without excuse. But the Bible goes on to say that is not in and of itself sufficient. We know there is a God, but we do not know who He is. We do not even know His name. We do not know much about Him, nor how we enter into relationship with Him, or even what He requires from us. 
Therefore, in verse 7, David begins to answer that question. No longer, as I pointed to you, pointed out to you last week, as in verse 1, no longer will he use simply the word El, the most generic word for God. In fact, it can even be translated mighty ones. It can refer to both angels and men. But it is a general word that just tells us, yes, there is someone mighty who made all of this. We know he is mighty because it is clear in the heavens. But now David in verse 7 changes from the one use of El to Yahweh or as it's sometimes pronounced, Jehovah. Now God's name appears not just in every verse, but in every line. Because David is telling us about a specific God. The God who has entered into covenant with his people. Psalm 19 now transitions from what we call general revelation, yes, there's a mighty God, to special revelation. Here is his name. Here is what he requires. Here is what he does for his people. Information that can only be found in the sacred writings. Books which tell us God's story and ours. Books which enable and empower a life lived for his glory and our joy. And because God has chosen to invest such magnificent power In this book, God's people have often been, and we might say must be, enthusiastic readers and lovers of the Bible. Let's see why. The first thing I would ask you to notice from this psalm is that the Bible must be our passion because of its effectual work. I see that in verses 7 to 8. The law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. There are four parallel clauses there. Each is composed of a noun that tells us something about an aspect of the Scriptures. Each noun is modified by an adjective telling us more about it. And then in each there is a verb that describes some mighty work that the Word of God does. Now this, as I pointed out last week, is beautiful poetry. Some have said it's the most beautiful uh, poem in all of language. But I want you to know and pay attention to this. It is not beautiful poetry because it is devoid of content. It is not beautiful poetry because it has left its theology at the door and has something silly and lighthearted to say. No, David here is carefully constructing a case for the Bible, a book like no other. Yes, he does so with beautiful language. Yes, it's parallel structures. Yes, it is fantastic literature. But it is a carefully argued presentation of the worth of God, so that we realize that the word of God is living and active. It is powerful. It is effective. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts all the way into the very depths of our beings and discerns the thoughts and, and even the motives that go on deep within us. 
You may remember the uh, the Duracell battery. Remember the Duracell battery? Boy, that's that's small going to be in the back row. You guys probably can't even tell it's a battery. It's a battery. It's a copper top. You remember their slogan? No other battery looks like it or lasts like it. It's a clever, catchy slogan. It, it's as if David is saying something like that. The inspired Bible. No other book lives like it nor labors like it. It does something. It's unique. There's nothing else like it. What is it about this book? What does it do? And, and how do the words do God's work in us? First, I would ask you to notice at the very first clause in verse 7 that the Bible contains the perfect law, which uh, the New King James, James uh, Version says converts the soul. Your footnote there uh, says you could translate it restores. I think the Hebrew word would be best translated revives the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. We have in our front yard a plant. Um, what's the plant with the big green leaves and the big flowers on it? The hydrangea. Maybe there's some reason. I don't know if it's because we just planted it this year or because it has such big flowers and leaves. But you let it go for a day or two in July and August, and it is doing some serious wilting. It looks like it has no hope. I remember the first day I came home in July, and we had gone a, a few days without rain, and I thought, oh, no, we spent all these money on these plants, and look at this thing, it's dying. But the interesting thing about the hydrangea, you go out there with a, a little water in 15 minutes, it's live again, just revives out of nothing. That's what the Word of God does. It revives. Now, the law here in verse 7 is not, it is not referring simply to the Ten Commandments or the the rules and regulations laid down by Moses. The law refers to everything that God teaches. The Hebrew word is Torah. And Torah is that kind and compassionate teaching that a father gives to his dearly loved children. So God's Torah, God's teaching in verse 7, it says is complete. It lacks nothing. It is perfect so that he has granted to us everything we need for life and godliness. As such, the Bible has this power to shine into the depths of what is at the bottom of our hearts. Yes, the Bible deals with outward sins, but the power of the Scripture is not its ability to say to you, do not steal. The power of the Bible is its ability to shine down and say you steal because you do not trust God who has provided you every good thing. You are saying you know better than God what you should have. That's its power. Yes, the outward works. In fact, this is one of the things I try so hard to teach parents when they're trying to understand how to discipline the children, their children. It's not the outer sins, in my opinion. It's not the outer sins that we should be worried about. In fact, when my children do something that's very obvious sin, we should be thankful for that. Not because they sin, but because it reveals the heart. And that's where the Word of God penetrates. That's its power. And so the Bible is saying here, David is saying, God is saying, it's perfect. There's no problem too desperate for the Word of God. No issue is too complex 
to be reached by the long fingers of the Bible. No need is beyond God's scripture's ability to help. No soul is too dry for that water in July to come and restore it. John Bunyan was a famous preacher in the 1600s maybe? 1600s. He went to jail for 12 years and wrote Pilgrim's Progress. In the front of his Bible, he had written this sentence. This book will keep me from sin or sin will keep me from this book. Today you have to decide which are you going to love, your sin or God's scriptures. They will not cohabitate no matter what the government in Maine says. This book will revive your soul and a revived soul will turn from sin. It cannot help it. That's the first thing it does. It revives the soul. Second, verse 7b. The Bible contains a sure testimony making wise the simple. Now this, notice what noun he uses to describe the Bible. He calls it a testimony. It is evidence given to support a case. Evidence given to support a claim. When our brother Scott goes to court, he lines up witnesses to give a testimony. And they put their hand on the Bible and they, I don't know if they still do, they still do that. They put their hand on the Bible in some places, in Texas they do, and swear to tell the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And yet even in doing so, you can't quite be sure of them, can you? It's not that way with God. The testimony of the Lord is sure, absolutely certain. Absolutely correct, because God himself is the one who is the witness here. He is the one who has written it. Now, living in a fallen world, you you know this, lies permeate virtually everything we do. We've seen this again as we get ready to buy a house. You, You fill out hundreds of pieces of paperwork, and to me, one of the most interesting pieces of paperwork is that piece of paper near the end that they give you, and it says on it, now, sometimes in typing seven or eight hundred pieces of paper, in filing this paperwork all over the country, we make mistakes. So by signing this paper, you promise not to take advantage of a typo that we might happen to make. In addition to that, you promise that when we find the typo, you're going to help us get it fixed. Because everybody's out to cheat you. And the bank knows that, that people have taken advantage of, of typing in the wrong address and it says... 2053 Davenport, and that house is 10 times bigger than the one I intended to buy, so I think I'll just try to steal that one. Because people are dishonest. They lie. You can't build a life upon them. When a man gives his testimony, it is never sure. When God gives it, you know this can be counted on. Here is wisdom for life and death. Here is wisdom for heaven and hell. Here is wisdom about the condition of your soul, both in sin and the freedom it can have in salvation and sanctification. Makes wise the simple. Third, verse 8a. The Bible contains right precepts or statutes which make the heart rejoice. The word right there does not mean so much the opposite of wrong as it means that which is level or straight as opposed to crooked. God's directions always reveal to us the straight way. Maybe some of you have had an experience similar to the woman who came to Jesus because 
of her medical problems. Listen carefully to her story. Mark chapter 5. There was a woman, and she had, and listen to the word, suffered much under many physicians and spent all the money she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. See, she did not receive right treatment. She did not receive the straight and narrow answer. Instead, she was given crooked advice. And instead of leading her toward the answer, it actually took her further from it. And she ended up depressed in heart and in soul as well as in body. God's Word is straight. He gives it to you straight. Yes, other books will tickle your fancy and please the flesh, no doubt about it. But the straight answer will comfort your fears. It will quiet your stricken conscience. It will warm your soul with eternal consolation. This will rejoice your heart. It is different than any other book. And fourth, in this part of the passage, David says in verse 8b, the Bible contains pure commandments giving light to the eyes. Some of you have snow skied, and you know how important it is to wear sunglasses. The, the reflectivity of pure white snow can blind us. Well, God's Word is also pure, like snow. But instead of shining a light at us so that we are blinded and cannot see, God's Word enters in us and shines a light out of our eyes. As it were, we have built-in flashlights now. See, apart from the commands of the Bible, apart from the commands of the Bible, we are unable to see the trap even as the bait is drawing us inexorably to it. Sin offers that treat. Like over at our offices, the mousetrap has that little wad of peanut butter there. Sin is offering that treat, but soon it will be sprung and it will crush and destroy. So the Bible must be our passion. Why? Because of these four works that it does. It revives the heart. It makes us wise to sin and self and Satan. It brings deep and abiding joy. And it gives light to our feet. God's Word is alive. It acts. It doesn't just entertain. It does not simply inform. It acts. It does something as it works its way into our soul. Listen to the way Isaiah describes this acting. Actually, God describes it. Isaiah records it. God says, think about the rain and the snow. Have you noticed that they come down out of the clouds? They sit on the earth. They're evaporated back up in the clouds. They come down in the clouds. They sit on the earth. They're evaporated back up. And you may think nothing is going on. But Isaiah 55.10 says, As that comes down from heaven, it does not return until it waters the earth and brings forth and sprouts and it causes seed to grow up and give you bread to eat in that exact same way. So my word, when it comes out, it does not simply hit your hard ears and bounce back, but it accomplishes 
that which I purpose, it succeeds in the thing for which I sent it. God's Word acts. It does a great work. Now, let's ask a different question. What if you do not want the Scriptures to change you? Yes, the Bible says that the Word is like a sword. But last time I checked, it hurts to be whacked with a sword. It gives wisdom. But not many people I know like to be called simple. Yes, it sanctifies. But in order to be sanctified, that must mean I am foolish and sinful. Yes, the Bible has this power and it does a great work. But what if I don't want its work to be done? Well, God answers that question for you in the next point, number two. The Bible must be our passion first because of its great work. But second, the Bible must be our passion because of its invaluable worth. And that's in verses 9 and 10. Listen to how God describes the worth of the Bible. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. David, in verse 9, continues describing God's word with these parallel clauses. And so you can, in one sense, say 7, 8, and 9 go together as a unit because in form they are all the same. A word for a noun for the Bible, the law, the testimony, the statutes, the fear of the Lord, the judgments, an adjective modifying it and a verb that tells something about it. And yet, if you look carefully at the content, you're going to find it differs in verse 9. Because in verse 9, David is no longer praising the work of the Bible. He is telling us something about its worth. It endures forever and it is righteous altogether. One of the interesting jobs I had as an engineer was to design various cutting tools. I did uh, drill bits and scraping blades and self-tapping screws and diamond-pointed awls, all these various things that doctors use to cut up your body. And I found out that the key to making a, an instrument that cuts is a very sharp edge. And so I studied sharp edges. What is it that makes a sharp edge and what is it that dulls a sharp edge? And one of the things that I really found interesting in my study was what causes a razor blade to go dull so quickly? Certainly, cutting hair can dull a sharp blade. But that's not the main thing that dulls the razor blade. The main thing that dulls the razor blade is corrosion. Have all that water, all of that um, acid that's on your skin and it gets on that blade and you have that very, very fine point where there's just a few atoms of metal sharpened down to the sharpest edge and it's so thin and the water and the acid and the air, oxygen and the air sit there and it corrodes. You can't see it, but the edge is taken away. The edge of a razor cannot endure because the world corrodes it. Notice, though, what it says about God's Word. It is perfectly clean. It's like a clean room where they manufacture those uh, Intel chips that drive uh, your personal computer. It's a clean room. 
There's no corrosion. There's no oxygen. There's no water. There's no acid there. It is undefiled. It is uncorrodible. And it's not just uncorrodable in parts. It's not just clean that endures forever. But notice what it says. It is true and righteous altogether. Now, the text does not say it is altogether righteous so that you might think when it says something it's righteous, but it says it's righteous altogether. Every single bit of it, every jot, every dot, every letter, everything about this book has been specifically chosen by God to convey his judgments so that everything in here is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for training in righteousness. The church where Helen's family attends in Memphis at the in, in the worship service after the pastor reads the uh, sermon text for that morning, every week they have the same response. He reads the text and then the pastor begins to quote 1 Peter 1.24. And as he finishes 1.24, the congregation recites together verse 25 with him. It's a beautiful testimony to the word. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. And then the congregation responds together. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever and yet and yet we do not know the Bible God's people do not know his word some British children were asked questions in their Sunday school class who was Noah's wife the answer Joan of Arc (laughs) some of you are a little slower catching on to that What happened to Lot's wife? She was a pillar of salt by day and a ball of fire at night. (laughs) It may have been true. What is the first commandment? Eve telling Adam to eat the apple. (laughs) Those are funny, but the hard statistics are not. George Barna uh, conducts polls and... He and many others have done research again and again among those claiming to be Christians. 75%, that's three out of every four people who say, yes, I'm a Christian, cannot define the Great Commission. Only 61% of the people who say, yes, I'm a Christian, know that Jonah is a book in the Bible. Only 38% can correctly answer this question. So this means two out of every three people who say, yes, I'm a Christian, can, gets the wrong answer to this. Is the sentence, God helps those who help themselves in the Bible? Two out of every three people gets it wrong. Only 18%, that's one out of every five uh, Christian, say, yes, I read the Bible every day. 23% of people, that's one, almost one out of every four persons who say, yes, I'm a Christian, admits they never read the Bible. Less than half of all Christians can name five of the Ten Commandments. And only 50% of all Christians know who delivered the Sermon on the Mount. Now, why is it that a people who profess the Bible to be God's Word, why would they be so woefully... Let me rephrase that. 
Why would a people who profess this to be God's word, why would we be so woefully ignorant of its content? The answer is in verse 10. Look at it again. More to be desired is God's word than gold. Yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and honey from the honeycomb. Imagine if I dump a thousand Krugerrands on the floor here. Krugerrand is the 22 karat gold coin made by South Africa. If I dump a pile of them here, maybe a thousand of them, and I say to you, you can take home as many as you want, your first thought, I'm sure, would be, what's the catch? Because you know that those kind of gifts are not given away. But if I could convince you, if I really could convince you that I had found the end of the rainbow over in Ohio, Council Bluffs. Yes, that was a good answer. (laughs) Over in Council Bluffs, I'd driven over there and found the end of the rainbow in this huge pot, and I just filled up my car, and everybody can have as many as they want. If I could convince you of that, there would be none left here at the end of the service. I mean, you guys take all of the zucchini that's out there on the table. (laughs) I know you'd take the Krugerrands if they were really free. Why is that? Because gold has some kind of intrinsic value that grabs your attention and demands you to want it. Well, God says the exact same thing is true of the Scriptures. Here is a treasure that never varnishes, a jewel that can never be stolen, a prize that never fades, food that never spoils. But for some of us, let's admit it, eating this bread of life is not sweeter than honey for us. So how do we cultivate a taste for it? Let me give you a twofold answer. How do you cultivate a taste for this bread which is sweeter than honey if when you eat it, it does not taste that way to you? Two things. First, ask God for new taste buds on the tongue of your heart. Ask God for Him to give you this taste. And then second, meditate on the promises of God. Let's look at each of those. First, ask God for new taste buds. Psalm 119, which is also about the Bible, though much, much, much longer than Psalm 19. Psalm 119 says this, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So obviously, whoever wrote Psalm 119, when he reads the Bible, he says, yes, I can taste it. I can taste the honey in it. This is sweet. This is good. And yet, listen, earlier in Psalm 119, verse 18, he says this to God. God, I need you to open my eyes that I may see the wondrous things in your law. So he is admitting, he is admitting two things. One, that he does not have that taste. It does not come naturally. And two, only God can give a taste for holy things. So you must believe the truth that it does not come naturally to love the Word of God. And you must ask. Because Jesus said, all things are, Jesus said, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open. And Paul said, all things are received by faith. Ask for the ability to taste the honey in the Word of God. And then while you are doing that, meditate on the reckless promises God makes to his people. 
How could we not delight in a book which promises to change us from dry chaff to lush trees? Surely you do not want to be a rootless person, a person who is blown around by the wind, who is weightless, who is useless, who has no consequence in your life. We desire. God has made you so that you desire to plant your roots deep and to draw up living water and to be fruitful, useful people in the world. That ability is found in the Word and it is promised there. Meditate on these promises. George Mueller lived in the 1800s, 1805 to 1898. Some of you may know him. He is famous for establishing orphanages. And the thing that, the way that he did that, what George Mueller is so famous for is pray. He was a man of prayer. In fact, stories are always told. Anytime you want to make the congregation feel guilty for not praying enough, you just pull out George Mueller because he prayed like 600 hours a day. When he had no food, you know, the most famous story is he had no food one day and so he uh, just set the, you know, he's got all these orphans, you know, 150, 200 kids. And so he just sets the table and makes them all sit down at the table and they say, well, Where's the food? God will provide. They just begin praying. Somebody knocks on the door and, and they brings in the food. And everybody's like, oh, I wish I prayed more. Yet listen to what George Mueller wrote. Listen to what George Mueller wrote at the end of his life. And he's describing something that happened to him 45 years earlier, or 40 years earlier. I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. It often now astonishes me that I did not sooner see this. And yet now, since God has taught me this point, it is plain to me as anything that the first thing the child of God has to do morning by morning is to obtain food for his inner man. As the outward man is not fit for work for, fit for, work for any length of time, except we take food. And as this is one of the first things we must do in the morning, so it should be with the inner man. Now, what is the food for the inner man? Not prayer, but the Word of God. And here again, not the simple reading of the Word of God so that it only passes through our minds as water runs through a pipe, but considering what we read, pondering over it, and applying it to our hearts. After having now above 40 years tried this way, I can most fully in the fear of God commend it. How different when the soul is refreshed and made happy early in the morning from what it is when, without spiritual preparation, the service, the trials, and the temptations of the day come upon one. George Mueller was a man of prayer, but he became a man of prayer because he saturated himself. He soaked his mind and soul in the Scriptures. So first then, notice the Bible will do a great work. Then second, the Bible is of inestimable worth. And then third, I plead with you this day to make the Bible your passion because of its gracious warnings. I see that in verse 11. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them is great reward. Now next week, Lord willing, we're going to consider in detail how God's Word changes us. For today, all I want to ask you to do is notice in verse 11 the warnings and the rewards promised. It is difficult. It is difficult 
That's an understatement. I just can't think of a better word right now. To navigate through a fallen world full of minefield of sin and selfish desire and wickedness and malevolent powers. In fact, maybe you should say, we should just say it is impossible. What hope have we? We who are frail creatures whose own hearts and minds are already bent toward an, an inclination toward evil and sin. Well, the answer is God's rewards and promises. God's warnings and rewards. God warns us of evil. He, he tells us the trouble that will come. He prepares us and protects us and delivers his people. And in addition to the warnings, obedience contains such a great reward. Obedience contains such a great reward that none can say to him at the last day, I have made any sacrifices to serve in your kingdom. Because every sacrifice is so generously rewarded that you win in the end. (laughs) You cannot give up anything in God's kingdom. Here is the way. Walk in it. God has plans for you, plans to prosper you, to give you good and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. The question is, will you trust his warnings and soak yourself in the scriptures? The story is told of a father whose son was leaving to go study for the ministry at a prestigious university in Germany. The son explained to his father his plans and his father said to him, Don't let them take Jonah from you. Don't let them take Jonah from you. That was his counsel. See, the the dad was concerned for his son because he felt his son's simple faith would be spoiled by the sophisticated, unbelieving professors at the liberal university in Germany. And he felt, as he thought about it, that surely the story of the great fish swallowing the prophet would be one of the first areas that these professors would attack Don't let them take Jonah away from you. So two years pass. The boy is at Germany, comes back from the institution. And when he returned, his dad remembered what he said and immediately said to him, Son, do you still have Jonah in your Bible? And the son laughed. Jonah, that story's not even in your Bible. His dad was confused. What do you mean? Yeah, it's in, sure it's in my Bible. What are you talking about? What do you mean it's not in my Bible? His son laughed at him again and with a sneer said, There is no Jonah in your Bible. Go ahead and look. So his dad began to fumble through the pages. He, You know, it's, it's a short book. It's hard to find. and He's looking forward and finally he's, He's embarrassed, but he sheepishly turns to the table of contents to look up the page number. Jonah here, it's uh, 812. And so he flips over to, to 812 and 811. And then 812 and 813, the pages where Jonah should be had been cut out of his Bible. And his son said, I cut it out of your Bible before I left. Because what is the difference? 
between me losing Jonah studying under unbelieving professors and you losing Jonah because you never read it. Now you tell me, covenant parents, whether you are raising your children to love the Word of God. Be honest. All of us say that this is the bread of life. We would tell the whole world that. And yet many of us would have to admit we do not eat it. We don't even know what it tastes like. We study the sports statistics. We know our novels, but we do not know the Word of God. Oh, yes, we tell our children that God speaks on these pages, but many of us could not find the book of Jonah. Have you taught your children how to read a commentary? Have you showed them how to have devotions? Have you showed them how to acquire a taste for the holy things of God? Of course you have said what they ought to do. But have you done it with them? Have you brought them to the word of life? Have you done anything beside raise self-righteous Pharisees? I'm not asking that you leave here feeling guilty. But I am asking that you answer this question honestly, maybe for the first time. Do you believe this is more valuable than gold? Tell me the truth. If there is a pile of Krugerrands here and I say, come and take, will you not walk out of here with pockets full? But if God says to you, this is more valuable than gold, yea, than much fine gold, will not some of us take it and throw it away? Because we do not believe. I am asking that you repent and believe this good news. Here is a treasure that will satisfy your soul forever and ever. Amen.